You've always been looking for something. That something that sets you apart. That something that makes you more than the person you're living as. More into the person you were created to be. What others see as mundane, you see as magnificent. You catch a glimpse of something new and it becomes something significant. It's that something extra that keeps you up at night. The hours pass by while everyone else sleeps. You dream, you imagine, you envision what your life might be. What if you were born for more? There's got to be more than just this. I want to be used. That's your greatest wish. The demand for you has always been true. You are gifted and passionate. Add God's purpose to this and watch what he can build. Now, what will you do with what you've been given? Will you put it into motion? Will you take on the responsibility? Will you follow after the calling God has placed on your life to be fulfilled, to be engaged, to cast out all fears, doubts and uncertainties, to stand strong, to rise up, to become who you were created to be. Who is the prodigy in you? Hi, my name is Chris, and four years ago I taught myself how to sew. Here's the first thing I made. Now I can make a pair of jeans in just three and a half hours. So I started a business with some friends, and we've made great clothes in the U.S. for the last three years. We drank this and listened to these. Making clothes was awesome. But then, two years ago, we met Danny from Tennessee, who had run a factory for over 25 years. And that's when we learned what it really means to make something in America. I've had five people tell me Danny's the best person you can find, and I believe him. He loves Tennessee football, Martha Stewart cooking shows, and playing practical jokes. He started his factory in 1988. Here's their first Christmas party. 150 employees. Here's what they used to make. Danny's last Christmas party looked like this. Five of the 150 workers remain. So what happened? In 1980, America made 80% of its clothes. Manufacturing was the backbone of the economy. But then companies started outsourcing like crazy, looking for cheaper labor around the globe. And as a result, we lost 5.2 million jobs in a 20-year time span. Currently, we make 2% of our clothes here in the States. That huge loss of jobs hit rural America the hardest. There used to be 20 factories in a two-hour radius from Danny. Now there's three. And when a town's got a population of 300 people and you lose 145 jobs, that's a big deal. We've seen Danny and his factory fight tooth and nail to find more work so they can hire people back and continue to do what they love, make incredible clothes. But they're struggling to hang on. This is why we created Victor, and Victor is doing things different. We're not only making highly detailed products, we're using entirely organic material sourced from the U.S. and Japan. And we're making online shopping easy by sending a free try-on box to your door, pricing our clothes straight from our factory to you. We're raising the standard for what it means to be made in America. We want to reverse the rules to where the hometown factory is the victor. 
You know, our series startup, we're going to look at a variety of startups, some we recognize, some we haven't heard of before, and look at how Jesus began his startup. Because in the same way, it always starts with a business assessing a need. What's the need out there? What I love about that story is it's really about people. How do we meet the needs of people? How do we provide jobs? And how do we look past not just the needs of the customer, but also the needs of the individuals? And Jesus did the same thing. He had a very specific strategy. Just as that company had a strategy to engage, so Jesus had a very clear strategy. How to get from where he was and where he began to connecting with the needs of the people living around him. It didn't matter where they were or what their background was. He saw that behind every human being, but behind that, that picture that we put on, the image we have, we come in here, we look really nice, we drive nice cars, but we were fighting with our wife on the way here and we're telling our kids, we be quiet, we're up to our church. Behind all of that, Jesus sees that as good as we look at times on the outside, all of us are calling out, God, I I need help. I'm sending out an SOS for some kind of meaning and purpose that only Jesus and God can fulfill. Let's listen. Man, there's so many things I love about that song, but just the, the honesty of realizing that all of us in our hearts are sending out an SOS I love that line about, I I may not be the only one who feels alone at times. I'm not alone at feeling alone. When Jesus began his startup, he wanted us to help hurting people. But he also wanted us to realize that often we discover we're hurting when we help other people. It's interesting, I... uh, send a group of people, and I don't, but every year we send groups of people down, junior high students, high school students, all over the country, all over the world to help hurting people, orphans and, and widows and, and impoverished folks. And every year, a particular group we send, a group of, of women that go down to do birthday parties and Christmas parties for orphans, they'll go down saying, we want to help some hurting people. And every year, they say, you know, while we were on that trip for a week, we found some real friends. We thought we had friends. But we never talked so honestly until that trip. One woman shared she felt really inadequate as a mom. So I felt like she was failing as a, as a spouse. And several of us, anybody else feel that way? And then somebody else shared that their marriage is going through marital infidelity and they're trying to figure out how to forgive or how to not give up or how to fix what's broken. Somebody else talked about the pressures of the fishbowl life of living in the country club lifestyle and the, the pressures that come from not knowing where you can ever be real. He said, we came back wanting to help hurting people. And what we realized, just sharing honestly, is that we're hurting ourselves with our own fears and anxieties and loneliness. I'm going to Belize, uh, going to Cancun rather, in a few weeks with our team. And while I'm down there, it reminded me of last time I went with our team, a bunch of guys who went down to build a soccer field for one of the most impoverished areas of Cancun. And while we're there, we're hand shuffling with wheelbarrows, shovels of rubber to put together the soccer field. And while we're there, uh, several guys have been going to our church that I knew of but didn't ever talk to personally. Got just a great chance while we're shoveling together to just chat. Man, he said, I've learned more about the Bible in the last year coming to Horizon than my whole religious education. I'm like, man, that's so encouraging. Somebody else said, you know, they're just really, I'm in a Bible study for the first time. I never thought I'd even want to be in a Bible study, let alone enjoy it. I am really growing. And yet here's what's fascinating. While we're helping uh, the impoverished down in Cancun, three guys separately during this couple days all said, Chad, there is one thing you shared in a sermon last year that was the most significant to me. All three guys said the same thing. I'm thinking, what might it be? 
all the research that I've done, all the series we put together, you know, all, all the, the work we do, the philosophical arguments I try and make, you know, tangible. I wonder what that thing would be. And all three reference the same thing. It's an illustration I gave a couple years ago. You might remember it. I'm going into Myers or Target, can't remember which, and I'm buying some dry ice for some science experiments in my house because we love doing science experiments. While I'm there, uh, I get in line, a woman in front of me, I, I don't recognize her from the back, and I notice she's buying lingerie. I now have an image of lingerie and a beautiful woman in my mind, and I'm just about to put those two images together, and I'm like, stop, 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 take thoughts captive, renew your mind, look at the dry ice if you need to, whatever it takes. And, oh, just feeling like victorious over uh, lust, you know, felt good about it. I turn back around, and she turns and says, well, hi, Pastor, how are you? (laughs) Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for staying pure. That was the one thing in my message that all three guys referenced as the most significant thing I had said. Now, why is that? Because when you admit you struggle with being thankful or loving or you wrestle with anger or wrestle with impatience or wrestle with lust, people go, hey, me too. I'm hurting. I'm broken inside. I need to be part of a community that's real and helps me move in a real way toward a real experience with God. When Jesus started the church, he wanted to be an organization that would help the hurting and help everyone realize that they are hurting as well. And Luke is going to construct his account today with three different characters. And as we look at these three characters, it's going to feel like, you know, which one doesn't belong? We have a leper, a paralytic, and a rich and powerful tax collector that works for the Roman government. Leper, paralytic, rich and powerful tax collector. And what we're going to discover by looking at these three stories is that I hope you'll be more aware of the needs of the people around you, whether they look weak or powerful, rich or poor. And whatever front we put up, that we'll be a little bit more honest with ourselves and others that we have incredible needs behind the veneer or the front we put up as well. Our first character is a leper. Now, the leper, leprosy was a condition where your nerve endings uh, still exist somewhere in the world today, um, but your nerve endings stop working. And because of that, your skin turns white because it's dying. And as it's dying, you can literally cut yourself and you don't even realize it. Well, this man, the principle we're going to learn from this leper is that it's easy to hide what's broken on the inside when you look good on the outside. And many of us look good on the outside, and so we can hide what's broken in our marriages, what's broken in our relationships, what's broken in our own hearts, because we look so good on the outside. But the leper can't. He looks like he's dying. And said, so the account says it's, he's full of leprosy. He says, Jesus, please, 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 if you're willing, if you, if you fix what's broken on the outside. And Jesus says, I am willing. And Jesus heals him. And now that he's cleansed on the outside, you think he's got his life together. But we're going to discover that he's still got a deep brokenness on the inside. Because Jesus turns to him and says, Listen, I'm right now doing one-on-one, guerrilla warfare, friend-by-friend kind of ministry where I'm building relationships with people. Don't go tell people I've done this. Because the crowds will be so big, I won't be able to do the personal ministry I want to do. 
Don't tell anyone except the priest as Moses instructed. And this man who's now been cleaned on the outside, only is given one command from God and he disobeys the one command. I think I know better than God whether or not we should tell the crowd. We'll come back to that in a second. Moses mentions here, or Jesus mentions, the reason I want you to go tell the priest is because I have a very specific strategy of who finds out about me first. So I want you to go tell the priest as Moses has commanded. To which you're like, well, who's Moses? What do you command? Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, Matthew, Mark, sorry, it was the New Testament, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. One of those books, a very unread, very uh, considered the most uh, boring often and the most difficult book of the Bible is Leviticus. And Moses commanded in the book of Leviticus that if a Hebrew man, an Israelite, was ever healed of leprosy, he was to go to the priest, and the priest had a very specific set of sacrifices he would do to recognize that he'd been healed. It's been 1,500 years. No Hebrew Israelite has ever in the Old Testament been healed of leprosy. And Jesus wants the priests to be the first to find out that God's ultimate inside-outside healer, the Messiah, has come. And so the man does go to the priest, as Jesus said, and the priest is like, you had leprosy and you're healed? And you, the rabbi told you to look up what Moses said? Pulls out the scroll. <laughs> I mean, they've literally never applied this verse in 1,500 years. Something big must be going on. God must be up to something big. And that was his strategy. If you've never been to our equipping service at Saturday at 4.30 or Sunday at 8.50, one of the things we do, besides challenging Bible teaching, we have praise, worship, prayer, communion at that service. But also we go through sometimes 6 to 18 months at a time, verse by verse, through books of the Bible. And this particular book that, Moses, that he references here comes from the book of Leviticus. We just spent six months going through the book of Leviticus in a series called, Holy Smokes, We're Studying Leviticus. Before that, we went verse by verse to the book of Exodus in a series called, Are You Ready to Rumble? Before that, we went through the book of Ezekiel in a series called Visual Aids and the book of Titus, Clear and Present Danger. And then one of the reasons we have a two-service design, which is built into our bylaws that will always have a two-service design, is we feel like having different environments that help people engage with God in different ways really helps serve people well. And when you come to a text like this, instead of just saying, as Moses said, whatever that means, oh, this has never been utilized for 1,500 years? This is a big deal. So hold that thought for a second. Now Jesus, the chapter before this, in chapter 4, wanted to show that the religious people of his day who looked good on the outside, just beneath the veneer of their religiosity, were pretty broken on the inside. So he shows up to synagogue, and he gets to synagogue, it's his turn to read. He opens the scroll from Isaiah and says, uh, The Spirit is upon me to preach good news, a very clear passage that only the Messiah would one day fulfill. Jesus finishes reading it, rolls it up and says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled. Imagine if I opened up the Book of Mormon, or I opened up uh, any religious book, the Veda, and, and he said, the thing your ancestors have been reading for 1,500 years, it's been about me. You'd be like, we need, come on, Chad. Narcissist, narcissist, narcissist. <laughs> this is a radical claim. And did you know the people in synagogue that day, they are thrilled? Yes! We were hoping that the, the Messiah would come from our hometown. They are ecstatic that the, the ultimate inside-outside forgiver and fixer has come from their hometown. 
And they look good on the outside. They're at synagogue. They just took a mikvah bath. These guys look perfect from the outside. And Jesus says, but let me tell you what my startup's going to be about. In the same way that no Israelite was ever healed of leprosy in the Old Testament. However, God did send Elijah to help a person who was not an Israelite. A very rich and powerful Syrian, not Israeli, man named Naaman who had leprosy. God healed him. In the same way that God in the Old Testament focused on guests and caring for guests and building friendships with people who didn't believe the way you did, my startup's going to be about the same thing. I'm going to build friendships with people who didn't grow up with, with our scrolls. They grew up with the myths of the, and the stories of and the accounts of the Greco-Roman gods. Now how do you think the religious people are going to react? That this whole movement is focused on other people, not just a holy huddle. Well, look what it says. And having heard that he's going to emphasize building relationships with people who believe differently than they believed, they are filled with wrath, it says. These church-going, synagogue-dwelling people are filled with wrath when they heard these things, and they lead Jesus to the brow of a hill. Pause for a second. I got a chance to go visit that synagogue. Synagogue is in the top picture. Got a chance to visit that. Look at the archaeological find related to that. And you'll notice it's in the lower picture. There is a hill right next to that, that they took Jesus right after he read that passage, walked him up to a particular cliff, and just like every good board meeting or church board meeting, they decided to throw Jesus off a cliff. Wah! We want to do our religious thing that's focused on us, 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 us. Jesus wants us to focus on others. Out with him. Which brings us then to Jesus quickly took the veneer of religiosity off the religious people and showed they were deeply broken on the inside. Rejecting God, self-righteous. And I think there's two parts in this passage that reveal to us what's broken inside of us. Number one is that goodness can often be the biggest blinder to experiencing God. Because when you're good, you don't need God to help you be good. When you're good, you don't need quite as much forgiveness as those people who do those kind of things. You get filled with self-righteousness or pride. God, you owe me because of everything I've done. Look at, you're lucky to have me on your team. And that's why religion, Jesus, is so hard on because religion blinds you to your need for God. You don't need his righteousness. You're doing fine on your own. Thank you very much. Now back to our leper who's been cleansed on the outside. But Jesus told him, don't go tell anyone except the priest. And the verse says, however, the leper felt like he knew better than God. And he told everybody. And Christianity has a fascinating diagnosis of the human heart. It says that what's wrong with you and I primarily is that we think we know better than God. The reason we worry is because we know how life should go and it's not going the way it should so we worry. The reason we're control freaks is because we want to control things only God can control and we know better than God how it should work. The reason we're perfectionists is because only God is perfect but we know better how to put this together even if we're not perfect. The reason we have trouble forgiving other people is we know who deserves a lightning bolt and who should get a second chance. When God gives a second chance and somebody deserves a lightning bolt, I'll keep track then if God's not going to do it right. The primary problem in the human heart is we think we know better than God. And that leper is broken on the inside. Second story. group of friends are bringing their paralytic friend to see Jesus. But they can't get in to see him. Why? Because of the big crowd. Why is there a big crowd? That leper told everybody. 
And Jesus can no longer do the strategic one-on-one ministry he wants because the crowd has gathered in. These friends so want their paralytic friend to come see Jesus that they're like, well, this, this won't do. We have got to find a way to get him in to connect with God. Now, what we're going to learn here is if you see a paralyzed man, what do you think his greatest need is? To not be paralyzed, right? What's fascinating is that Jesus sees past the outside, even an obvious need, and says there's actually a bigger need behind his obvious need. The obvious need is paralysis. The biggest need is an internal connection and understanding of forgiveness from God. It's interesting because I was reading an article by uh, David Bowie. You think David Bowie, you think of his career, you think of his life, you think of how much fame and money and power he's had. You think, well, that, that guy must have it together. His greatest need, he must not have any needs. He was talking about fame. He said, you know, fame won't get you much more than a good seat at a restaurant. He said, in my day, we're pretty selfish, my generation, but we thought you had to be good at something so you could be famous for that. The current generation doesn't even want to be good at anything. They're willing to do anything just to be famous. And what they're going to find is that fame by itself leaves you empty. That there's an inner emptiness that material things, power, position, appearance, can't meet. I read another fascinating story by Joe Buck. His dad was the voice of the uh, uh, Cardinals. And because of that, he got a job as an NFL uh, newscaster pretty early on in his career. And he felt pretty lucky about that. But he said, you know, one of the challenges of celebrity, and you think, oh, well, you must be in a nice first world problem. He said, there's some real issues that, for example, he says he's calling a, an NFL game one time, and he got to the second half, and the breaks, as he's doing a play-by-play on the radio, are only 30 seconds. And because of these old stadiums, there's no bathroom but on the other side of the stadium. So he's like, he's talking to a spotter who helped him figure out who caught the ball. I got to go. He's like, well... It, it's on the other side, and he had to be back for the play-by-play. And he's wearing this parka because it's freezing cold, and he's like, well, send everybody out of here. And he ends up pulling up the garbage can, having to use the garbage can while he's doing the play-by-play uh, for the NFL game that day. And he said, the other thing is, i only got 30 seconds to get there, but my dad always said that you're not supposed to run back to the microphone. And while I'm there, people want to greet me and meet me, but I have 30 seconds to go and get back. I never thought of this when I was watching NFL games. But then he said, which I thought was fascinating, he said, as my career began to grow, my hair started falling out. I'm starting to relate. And he said, I was pretty insecure about that, so much so, he tells in one chapter, how he went and uh, decided to get hair plugs. Because of some aspect of the, of the procedure, he wakes up and he lost his voice. I have no idea how that works. And he said, I was amazed at the insecurity I had about my looks and my career... I almost lost permanently the thing that made me who I was, the voice of the, of the radio. And all of a sudden, this guy who looks like, oh, it must be nice to have a career like you, became very vulnerable talking about insecurities and fears and being controlled by how people perceived him. And Jesus had this ability to, whether you were rich or poor, famous or not, to see the needs behind the veneer. And he certainly does it here in this account. Because these friends are like, we are going to get our friend in. So what they do is they climb up on top of the roof. They get up on top of the roof and they lower their friend down. They rip through the roof. And their roofs were made of sort of a layered vegetation. So they pull that back and they're lowering their friend down. 
as her friend is lowering down into the room to see Jesus, Jesus sees their faith. Now notice that. He doesn't see his faith, the paralytic. He sees their faith, the friends. He says, I want to help this man because he's got great friends who care about someone other than themselves. That's again one of the reasons we started Horizon is we wanted to be friends who cared deeply about other people. Whether they're orphans or city gospel or, or whether it's you know, friends around the corner. We want to be great friends who cared about other people because when you care about other people, it grabs God's attention. In fact, we were never in our church history, we didn't do radio advertisements or television advertisements. We never did any of that. Why? We want to be about friendship. And if you see a real friend change, you're going to know if it's fake or not because you're friends with them. And if it's real, you're going to say, hey, what's going on with you? And I, I want to know something about that. Our church began with personal handwritten notes, friends inviting friends to come to that first 50, 70 people who attended our church. We got into this building seven years ago, personal handwritten notes inviting people to come to this building. Because Jesus saw their faith, and then he doesn't meet the immediate need of his, sins or, of his par- paralysis. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Yeah, but he's, he's paralyzed. Jesus, again, sees behind his immediate need of paralysis. He eventually heals that too. But he starts with the bigger need. You need forgiveness with God. You need to be right with God. You need to have a right standing with God. This is so shell-shocking to the religious leaders of the day. They say, they accuse him of blasphemy, which means claiming to be God. And they say, no one can forgive sin except God himself. Now, you may or may not believe Jesus is God. We've come to that conclusion as a church because of evidence like this. And if you're a Hebrew Easterner, and you said, is it possible to forgive sins? An Easterner would say, of course it is. But you can only be forgiven in one place. At temple, where heaven and earth meet, there's a specific way and a specific place to be forgiven. Jesus, however, is saying he can forgive sin and wrongdoing at a dinner party. And this is so radical in that culture, where you could only be forgiven at temple. Jesus is saying, wherever I go, it's where heaven and earth meet. Wherever I am, there can be forgiveness. Wherever I am, there can be healing. And that is why his opponents are like, this guy is committing the ultimate crime, claiming to be God. Well, hold that thought. We'll go to a third picture. Our third character is a tax collector. Now, let me tell you a little bit about tax collectors. What we're going to learn about tax collectors is that Jesus saw needs where other people saw bounty. Tax collectors were typically Hebrews who got a job with the government, and the Roman government basically lent them all of their power to take exorbitant amount of taxes from the countrymen. And you actually bid on the project, and he bid on the project, and, and if you can bring the most amount of taxes, then you got a giant cut from it. Very, very well-known, name recognition. His name's Levi, also known as Matthew. Also, very, very powerful, very, very wealthy. And if you put a picture of, of, of Levi up on a, a screen, people say, must be nice. Like to have his kind of problems. They saw bounty, bounty, bounty. But Jesus, even wealthy, powerful people, he didn't see bounty. He saw the needs behind the bounty. 
How do you know who your friends are when everyone who befriends you might want to befriend you or they might just want a tax cut from you because you control it? How do you know if somebody really wants to date your daughter or they're just dating your daughter to get access to your inheritance? There's a special kind of loneliness that comes from being rich and powerful. There's a special kind of loneliness of not knowing where it's safe to be real and being hated and envied. Let me think of it this way. If I put a picture of a hundred children from Cancun or Ethiopia up on the screen, how would you feel? Probably compassion toward the needs and compassion toward the difficulty. If I put a picture of the hundred top CEOs in America on the screen, how would you feel? Envy? I was hoping by 50 I'd have that job. Still got two more steps to go. Envy? I bet you they didn't earn that. But Jesus said that even the rich... A camel going through the eye of a needle is easier than a rich person finding God because all of that riches actually is distraction from seeing the deeper spiritual need that Jesus saw that we all have. And so Jesus befriends Levi, truly befriends him, says, come, follow me. He becomes one of his disciples, eventually writes a whole book of the Bible we know as the book of Matthew. And, and he's so intrigued that Jesus doesn't judge him. Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus befriends him. And he says, you know, we're going to throw a party. I have never invited a rabbi to a party before. Would not have wanted one. I like hanging out with you. And he, Levi, invites all of his friends, and they have a party to just have friendship together. In the context of that friendship, all of a sudden, people begin to have conversations about the the struggles in their life and the realities of their life. And Jesus, through friendship, begins to have deep, meaningful friendship conversations. Because he didn't see bounty, he saw need in Levi. I was reading about the story and the friendship of Billy Graham and Queen Elizabeth. Well, most people see Queen Elizabeth as royalty and rich and powerful. Billy Graham saw spiritual need. And every time he was in the UK, he met together with her and they became very close friends. The account of this true story is put into the TV show The Crown where it gets reenacted, where the queen turns and says, you know, as a leader of so many, sometimes it would be nice to be led. And thank you for coming and trying to lead me spiritually. You talked today about being a simple Christian, and that's what I long to be, a simple Christian. She said, I'm actually, because I'm the queen, I'm the head of the church in England. So there's nobody above me but God in the pecking order. All the priests are down here. All the bishops are down here. I don't have anyone to lead me and help me incorporate my simple faith into my life and into this arena that I serve in. Billy Graham spoke about the friendship and the way in which he was able to befriend because he helped everybody connect with their spiritual need. It's one of the things we're about as a church. We're about exactly that. Wherever you are, Whatever you come across, let's help you get connected with God. John and I visited a friend who'd been attending our church a couple years ago, and we heard he just built this new facility. So we said, hey, we'd love to come up and get a tour of the facility. And it was an amazing tour. Talk about the business and how it's expanded. And you could see his great relationship with his, his employees. You could see the vision he had for the company. We go to have lunch together, and he's got a private dining area next to the open area. He goes, usually I'm out with the employees. I gotta, when I have a meeting, I've got to sit here. Otherwise, I get interrupted so many times, I can't have a conversation. Well, that makes a lot of sense. He said, thank you. Said, you know, I've never had a pastor come and want to get to know me and my business. I really appreciate this. He said, now, how much do you need? 
what size check do you want? I said, we're, we're not here for a check. He said, well, seriously, you're probably doing good things around the world. I said, well, we are doing good things around the world. He said, well, how much check do you need? Uh, what kind of a, a check do you want me to write? Like, we're not here to get anything from you. Really? I said, you've been coming for a little bit. We want to help you get connected to God. Is there a Bible study we get you connected with? Is there somebody who works up near your area, your company is, maybe could do lunch with you once a month? You don't want me to write a check? I said, well, certainly. We certainly have needs. We certainly need people to give financially. But that's not why we're here. We want to connect you with God. If when you get connected with God, you decide you want to be on mission with us and give, that's fine. But we are here for one reason, is to help you more deeply connect with God. He, he shook our hands as we were leaving the day. He's like, this, I've never had a pastor come visit me. And I've never had a pastor say that they're more interested in me connecting with God than getting a check from me. Ah, this is a fascinating day. <laughs> But really, wherever you are, we want to help. I wrote, again, the last seven days, some, some ways we've been able to help people connect with God. We've got a young man who needs a mentor because he doesn't have a dad's spiritual imp, uh, influence in his life. So we're getting him connected to our mentor this week. I had a woman come into my office and said, I really don't understand the basic message of the Bible. So I use John 3.16 and just explain. God gave his son because God loved us. Because we were perishing, we didn't live up to our own standards. Therefore, if we believe that, and we receive that, you become a follower of Jesus. That's it? That's it. She goes, I've been in church my whole life, and I've never heard that. I said, would you want to pray? She's like, I don't pray aloud. <laughs> I said, that's fine. How about, how about I'll just say some words, and you repeat it in your own way. And we just had this great moment. I got a phone call on Friday from a couple. So listen, we, we need some help. We feel like spiritual failures. We're in our 50s. We feel like we should be serving God better, and we're not. Can you help my partner and I? And I said, well, um, you and she... Uh, you just want to have, like, relationship counseling. We do some marriage things. You get you connected with a mentor related. No, 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 you don't listen to me. I want to know how to connect with God. Our relationship's fine. We want to connect with God. Man, well, that's awesome. He goes, we feel like spiritual amateurs, and we shouldn't be. And so we're getting them connected to figure out how to connect with God in, in their journey. And that's really what our church has been about. It's been making those kind of connections. We had a guy in our offsite on Wednesday said, I love my Bible study. I've been in a lot of Bible studies for 20 years, but never one like this. It is so raw. It is so real. We talk about deep, challenging biblical things and philosophical things and big questions. But also, there must be an F-bomb that's dropped in our Bible studies at least once a week. It is a unique Bible study, he said. <laughs> The people on different places of their journey saying whether you got clean language or bad language, whether you love sports or you love sci-fi, whether you grew up religious or grew up irreligious, Horizon's a place that creates friendship to help you help the hurting in the world around us and to help you discover that you're hurting in many ways as well. Which is why the Pharisees are so mad he's hanging out with these, these tax collectors that they say, do you realize that these are tax collectors when he's having this party? And Jesus has this great quote. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Remember, this book was written by a doctor. He must have gone, oh, I like that one. <laughs> those who are well don't need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repent. Jesus isn't implying that the religious people got their act together and the tax collectors don't. He's actually implying that the tax collectors are more aware of their need for a physician than the religious people are, which is why goodness is such a problem. When you're so good, you don't need God, you're never going to find the physician. And yet if you're honest with yourself, and I'm honest with myself, don't you beneath the veneer of who you are see fears, 
I mean, my fear of failure at times, my fear of, of making people mad or conflict at times. I'm embarrassed at how important people's opinions are of me at times. I'm embarrassed sometimes at how inadequate I feel as a husband or as a father of a special needs son. I'm embarrassed. But I'm so grateful that Horizon can be a real place that we can talk about where we're broken, where our marriages are going well and where they're not going well, where our parenting's going great and where we're like, oh, is this ever going to get through this stage? So the reason we designed our church and continue to follow the startup pattern of Jesus is it's about people and helping people connect with God and look past the veneer to help people discover what's really going on in their life. And so one of the tools, I want to give you five ways that you can connect with that, and then I want you to hear a story. This booklet is designed as something you can go through in a companion. We wrote all this material last June, so last June they said to me, we need all your messages for January done by June. So uh, if this is bad, it's because I had to work on it six months ago. Um, then uh, we have a whole volunteer team and staff team to put this booklet together. And part of the booklet helps you ask questions about yourself. What is really going on beneath the surface? So maybe you want to do that on your own. Maybe you want to join a group to be part of that. You can join a study group. If you go to our website, horizoncc.com, you can sign up for our newsletter. On the newsletter are links to different ways that you can serve. Maybe you want to serve here at Horizon. Maybe you want to serve at CityLink. Maybe you want to go down uh, and work with uh, folks with uh, building a habitat home or, or City Gospel. But make this the year that you start up connecting with God. Because when you help people here, near, or far, God reveals hurting areas in your life that begins to grow you in. Or maybe you're not a guest here anymore and you're like, you know, I love the mission of this church. I love the way I have connected with God over the last two, three, five years, ten years. And maybe you want to start giving financially because you're on board. I want to be part of creating environments for kids and students and adults. I want to be part of that, a place where people drag their, uh, kids drag their parents to church. I love that idea. I love the idea that it's an other-centered environment. I want to give to that and as I mentioned about a month ago, that we're trying to build about a million-dollar uh, addition here within our church building to have 125 additional seats. You say, hey, somebody built this room for me. I want to build for somebody else. I want to make a pledge to do that. I want to be, be, do a gift to do that. Whatever it is, make this the year that you prioritize getting connected to God at a deeper way. And to do that, our series, we've also been taking you back in time. So I want to give you a little inside scoop. This is somebody you see on stage all the time, but maybe you don't know his story. Can we give a warm welcome to my friend, Kenny Cowden? Hi, Chad. Hey, Kenny. Good to have you with us. That's my cold voice here. That's, Johnny, that's a little Johnny Cash there for a second. We're not doing Cash today. So... In case you don't know, uh, Kenny was here before me, so I actually came in and was interviewed by Kenny because uh, I was going to be uh, the creative arts director uh, as well as the teaching director. Um, so I taught on Wednesdays, and then I also was a creative arts director. So tell us a little bit about those early days. We left off last week with Mike and Carol before our first Easter service. How did you get connected to church, and what happened those early days? Well, I got connected. Um, I'd been playing uh, in a late, like, 99 maybe 98, 99, I was a, a substitute guitar player at Crossroads when they met in the school on Erie Avenue. And uh, I met Funky, um, and he was part of that uh, organization, and I was liking it, but it was just a gig to me, I'll be, if I'm being honest and authentic, it was just a gig, um, and I'd always go to another gig from there. And uh, he pulled me aside and asked me if I'd go to lunch and tell me about this new uh, Crossroads that was going to be starting in, in uh, Indian Hill. 
And it sounded intriguing because it was going to be more my age pocket. I had kids, and, and it, uh, at the time, Crossroads was extremely young. Mm -hmm. and it was an awesome experience, but brought me over, and I thought, well, this sounds great. And uh, they were really practicing to be a church at this mm -hmm. point. It was, uh, we were meeting at Indian Hill High School, and uh, it was before we went to CCD, and it was no rehearsal. It was, we show up, and uh, I think Rob Ryder was, was leading worship for a period of time there. And uh, he would just hand me charts. I had never heard the songs. And he'd go, just play something during this. <laughs> and it was, it, was, it was really cool, but it, it, it was nothing like it is now. And, and we moved to CCD and, from there. And spiritually, you didn't really have a particular spiritual interest at that point, right? Because uh, I, mean, I remember uh, people were like, where's Kenny? I think he's taking a smoke break. We've got to get him out here for the next song. Yeah, we, literally the band would go outside and, and smoke and talk and wait for, oh, we got another song to play. It was yeah. really, it, no, not, not here, but like that was in the early yeah, days. Yeah, early days. I mean, like in early days, yeah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> no, that was a long time ago. But uh, yeah, it, so it changed a lot. It changed a lot. Once, once came here. So then we have our grand opening in CCD. So this came with his long hair, by the way, if you didn't see that one. A picture will come back around That's after the shortcut. In fact, Kenny's That's hair... That's 18-year-old daughter in the back over there now. That's cool. Yeah, definitely. Well, Kenny's hair was so long at that point, I said, hey, how about... He, he, he joked that his mom had been asking him to cut hair since he was a, a young kid. And so I said, what if we actually, for Mother's Day, actually cut your hair on stage and we'll invite your mom to come in as a gift for her? I, I almost agreed. He's like... <laughs> <laughs> not going to happen. He yeah. said, "He said, Chad, honestly, uh, I, I really don't want to do this. And, and I might cry. <laughs> I can't remember if he said that. Yeah. Oh, is that too vulnerable? Sorry. I said that. I probably yeah, yeah, that. Yeah, you're probably joking. Yeah, Maybe I was, not. I was joking. I never cried. Yeah. So we're at uh, it's CCD. We're at CCD. It's Easter, right? So I wasn't there at that point. So the Easter service, I remember seeing pictures. It was like formal affair, that opening. I mean, it's like CCD everybody's dressed guys, to the nines. Everybody and, dressed like, you know, my parents, you know, we had to dress as a kid. Yeah. Put it on. And my mom would be freaking out on wearing jeans and Doc Martin's the church, but that's, and so that's we, how it looked. And we had like a Wednesday service that had like 20 to 40 people coming. Rob Ryder was our worship leader, and Kenny was, was backing that up. And then uh, Sunday morning, we had about 150-something people coming yeah. at that point. And we also used to do these parades. You see some pictures up here. We would uh, actually, uh, our band would play in the parades, both in Madeira and Indian Hill. So Todd, yeah. our sound guy, would set that all up, and, and they would... Uh, we literally had straps and clamps holding us to a trailer, and we'd fold Roll down uh, Miami uh -huh. and uh, rock and roll. We were playing Leonard Skinner going right down the middle of Madeira. And, and uh, we'd stop. And, and people would come out and say, oh, this is my church band. And it really became a neat thing where we almost we're, brought the party we're, we're, to, to people. Yeah. Yeah. We'd have this, the diesel fumes from the truck. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, over that... You know, the last, uh, I guess, 13, 15 years, uh, you know, we've gotten to be really good friends. And it's been yeah. neat to see how you've grown spiritually from little spiritual interest to I don't want to pray out loud to now being, you know, one of our primary worship leaders and, and one of my, you know, really best friends. So tell me a little bit about how you've grown spiritually just in this well, journey I think, here. I think for me, honestly, it was, it was people like you, Chad. It was uh, the friendships that, I, that I, I started way, way back. Um, people have been so kind to me and filled with grace and... It, it was the people. It was entirely the people. It was Mike, Mike and Carol, and, and Trey, and yourself. Um, people like Albert that I get to work with, you mm -hmm. know, uh, speak into my life. They, they know the kind of person I am and the kind of person I've been and who I want to be. Mm -hmm. And uh, the music just grabbed me. It, was, it, it started as a gig, you know, 18 years ago, 19 years ago. It became 
wow, this has really happened to the point where I was getting choked up trying to sing worship songs because God was really working in my heart. Mm. And uh, it's, it's taken me through a lot of, of good times, rough times, and I can't imagine having lived my life without the faith that I've, gr- I've grown mm. through here. That was awesome. Can we thank Kenny for sharing his story here? Thanks, man. Appreciate it. In the spirit of that, I'm going to have Kenny, do a, uh, Kenny and the band do a final song. And I love this song because it actually says exactly what we've been describing, is that we all put on a front. And yet behind that front are real people with real needs, with real struggles. And we want to get to know the fake you, if that's what you want to start. But we eventually want to get to know the real you. And we want to try and peel down the fronts that we put up and try and show real, broken, hurting people who are trying to pursue a real God who loves brokenness. He loves honest people. He loves us increasingly to be honest about where we are and where we need to be. So as you hear this next song, just know this is the vision of our church, to be a real place and to get past the fronts. Let's listen together. Well, again, we thank you for being here today, and we hope this can be a place that you can increasingly find. Maybe it's just a small group of people you can be real with and begin to ask the bigger questions in life, and we could help you in whatever way we can connect with God. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week as we continue startup. Thanks again.